from St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. State Representative Ashley Bland Manlove is the chair of the Missouri Legislative Black Caucus. And the Kansas City Democrat has a lot to say about election-related legislation moving through the Missouri General Assembly and the fight to expand Medicaid. Bland Manlove joins us next on the latest episode of Politically Speaking. So let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me from Jefferson City, uh, she is the leader of the Missouri Legislative Black Caucus and a state legislator representing the Kansas City area. Our guest today is... Representative Ashley Bland Manlove. Thank you so much for joining us. This is your first time on Politically Speaking, so we have to do the run of the mill, like what your district is and who you are types of questions. Um, So we're going to start with that. Uh, Can you just describe to our listeners what district number you represent and what are the general geographic boundaries? Well, I represent, uh, I call it the heart of Kansas City. So I'm I'm smack in the middle. So I have um, what's known as Cleaver 2, to 99th Street, Homes to Prospect. So I kind of start at UMKC, go over to Paseo High School, and then I've got a pretty good rectangle all the way back to 435 Highway. Is it always, I, I, don't, I don't know if uh, uh, Congressman Cleaver ever goes on the street that's named after him, but if he's on the street, <laughs> is that like a weird experience for him to be walking down his own street? You know, I don't know. Um, I think with all the accolades from him being such an amazing mayor for us and um, all the other positions that he has held, I'm pretty sure he's used to the fanfare by now. I know. I've always I'll have to ask him that question the next time I talk with him. So so tell me a little bit about yourself. I know from reading about your background that you come from a multi-generation political family. Um, but you also have a very interesting professional background in the sense that I think you have uh, uh, involvement with accountancy and also the military. Just tell us a little bit more about yourself. Well, I am born and raised in Kansas City. Um, Graduated from St. Teresa's, the all-girls high school there. Uh, Then left and um, went to college for a little while and started working on um, practicing accounting. Um, then left there and joined the military. I joined the Missouri Army National Guard, served in my good city at the Ozark Armory as an intelligence analyst, held a top secret clearance and won an Army Achievement Award in those seven years. Um, Then we kind of, uh, I I was still in the corporate world. I was actually working for MoDOT and um, in their accounting department. And I was um, approached by my predecessor, and she said, you know, you you come from a, a great pedigree and background with your grandmother serving between the House and the Senate for 30 years, and then your uncle serving after her for his eight as term limits were enacted, 
and I think you'd be a good fit for the seat. And I said, mm, I just started working here in MoDOT. I think I'll stay here. It's much more calm and safe. <laughs> and uh, she then responded. She said, okay. And then found me a couple of weeks later. And I only ended up working for MoDOT for about three months and uh, started running this campaign. Just for our listeners, uh, you're grandmother was Senator Mary Groves Bland and your uncle was Craig Bland. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Correct. My grandmother was elected in, um, I think, 1980. And then her serve, her term started in 81. And then she stayed between, she stayed in the house for like 20 years and then finished up um, Senator Phil Curls's Senate um, term and then served uh, one or two more. And then, as I said, my uncle served in the House for his full eight years. I was just going to say I was covering the legislature when Craig Bland was in the House. So I remember him very well. Uh, But enough memory laning, so to speak, that you are you are the uh, chair. Is it the chair chairwoman leader? Uh, What's your official title as far as the legislative black caucus? I want to make sure I get the terminology correctly. It is chair. Um, you know, I try not to uh, put the you know gender assignment on the back of it, so I just keep it chair of yes, the Missouri Legislative Black Caucus, which is the only bipartisan caucus and the only one that's not you know the House Democrats and the House Republicans. There's only three caucuses, so I'm I'm honored to lead that group. Just explain for our listeners like what the caucus does that may be different from, say, the Republican and Democratic caucus. It may seem like an obvious question, but I think it's a good opportunity for our listeners to know more about what it does. Well, um, as most of the the Black caucus is Democratic, um, sometimes our goals don't align. And so it is good to have a space with like-minded people um, that is safe um, for you to, uh, you know, um, come together for ideas about either legislation or how to stop and and protest to get some of this horrible discriminatory legislation that's coming through. Um, so so it's a point for us. It's a place for us to come together um, legislatively and for morale purposes and camaraderie, um, as it's not a very Jeff City and the Capitol are not very diverse areas, so it's it's good to uh, kind of see people who look like you sometimes. I believe, though, right now in the Senate I, with five black senators, I don't think that that's a record, but it's probably close to the most black senators there's ever been. Um, does My that knowledge that is the most? It is the most. Okay. Does that provide you to provide your caucus as a whole with more power? Because obviously we're going to probably talk about this. Democrats in the House have difficulty stopping things unless a lot of Republicans are with you. But it's obviously a lot easier to leverage some of your desires in the Senate by using the filibuster or or something like that. Have you found that because of that designation of having five black senators, your caucus has more oomph, so to speak, than if you only had three, basically? Well, definitely. That's the whole point of trying to drive of um, voter turnout numbers up. There's there's more power in numbers, especially when you can all come together, um, you know, in a unified idea. So I would say definitely having uh, the five members in the in the Senate is, has been a an attribute to us. So let's talk about uh, elections a little bit more. 
Um, okay. y- you were part of a press conference recently, which was criticizing a number of different things that were kind of within the election realm that we're going to talk yes. about. Photo identification requirement, making it more difficult to get uh, something on the ballot and for like a constitutional amendment to pass. But I want to start on the photo ID measure. We actually okay. had Representative Dan Shaw on the program um, earlier this earlier this week, and he kind of described what was this deal that he's describing as creating this three week period for people to vote absentee with for any reason in person, along with the photo ID requirement. I'm going to play that clip and have you respond to it. And, and I think it's fair now, uh, realizing that they have concerns, the other side, and there's some concerns. We've decided uh, on this bill part of the compromises that. Uh, we'll go to three weeks, no excuse, uh, and it'll have uh, the photo ID in it. So it's kind of a, uh, they don't like the photo ID. I, uh, the Republican Party doesn't necessarily like the no excuse. Uh, open, uh, no excuse for six weeks would be the same as early voting. Uh, and I think uh, when, when you're that far out, six weeks, there's lots of things that can happen in the last six weeks before the election that can change one's um decision on who they're going to vote for. So I talked with two members of the Missouri Legislative Black Caucus this week, Representatives Joe Adams and Kevin Windham Jr. And they basically both told me that this deal is not worth taking because, first of all, they would rather get rid of the excuse system altogether. And they don't think that implementing the photo ID requirement is worth it. Do you share the view of your two colleagues? Well, yes and no. Um, yes, in that you, you shouldn't have an excuse to have to vote. That's your right. And from the inception of this country, certain people who have been in charge, particularly white landowning males, um, have tried their hardest to stop anybody who does not fit that description from voting. Um, so I, I reject the notion um, that you need an excuse to vote. I also reject the notion that you need a photo ID to vote. Um, there are, there's the little card that the actual board of elections sends to you. Um, and, and, and then you can have any type of, um, ID, whether that be your birth certificate or your, you know, social security card or your student ID. Um, and, and that also puts a huge burden on, um, persons who were born, you know, in the 1950s and before, um, this is kind of a new concept to be to be born in a hospital. Therefore, a lot of people were born at home or you know, or they just were at home and their parents didn't finish the paperwork, things like that. So it can be difficult for them to get a hold of their birth certificates, which then makes it difficult for them to get a photo ID. Also, um, since our DMVs are um, private contractors, they, the proponents of voter ID try to say, well, well, the state gives a voucher to pay for it um, because we have also mentioned how there is a financial barrier there. Um, but some of those private contractors know that the government does not move in a timely fashion. So therefore they do not accept those vouchers. Um, so I reject that, all of that. However, 
um, I do believe in compromise. And I believe that is the point of a statesman is to, yes, give, give them a little and give us a little. And then hopefully we come out, of, come out with a product that really nobody is excited about because we are sitting on different sides, but that we can all agree upon. So um, if this is the concession that was made, then I'm, I'm happy for that. As they did not choose to extend um, voting, um, you know, changes that we have made in regards to COVID. So what we can get, I am happy for. I, I just want to uh, follow up on a point that you made, because a lot of Republicans when are going to say, you know, the state will pay to get a birth certificate. And Secretary Ashcroft actually told me in an interview, like the Secretary of State's office will do all the work for that person. Well, first, I just reject the notion that, like I said, you need a photo ID, this form of voter fraud that they are that, you know, is, you know, as everybody says, the big lie um, of voter impersonation is not what people have been charged with. And so the fact that our election boards are already charging people with these different types of voter fraud, whether it be in the wrong location or have voted multiple times, means that this is um, looking, this is a solution looking for a problem. Um, and, and if the state is willing to do all of the footwork to make sure that you get that birth certificate, he has, our Secretary of State has had, has done a horrible job of letting the constituency know that that is an option. And that is all his job literally is to do. I'm going to play a clip now from Republican Elections Director Gary Stoff of St. Louis City, because he was, I asked him about the whole provision, provisional ballot process, because one of the big parts of this legislation we're talking about is if you show up to the polls without a government issued photo ID, you can still cast a provisional ballot. And I wanted him to explain the process that he sees. And then I want you to maybe explain your point of view on on that provision. Here is Gary Stoff. If a voter were to show up at the polling place with no identification at all, but if we can show in our uh, electronic poll pad that they are in fact a registered voter, we let them vote a provisional ballot. And if they're in that poll pad, the chances are 99.9% that they're in fact a registered voter. And so while voting a provisional ballot is a an extra step in the sense that you also have to then fill out an envelope and then the voted ballot goes into a sealed envelope, which goes into a side compartment. Uh, the voter is also given a, a um, stub from the envelope flap that has a pin number on it that where they can check after the election if they want to find out for sure uh, whether their ballot was counted. So I wanted you to not only respond to what he was saying, but also respond to the idea from Republicans that, you know, getting to vote for through a provisional ballot is not a big deal and it's not a huge burden on people that may not have a government issued photo ID. Because I've, I've heard that argument a lot from supporters of this. I think it's only fair for your side to respond to that argument. Well, you know, that's like telling the cancer patient that the, the generic will work just fine. Don't worry about it. What? This is my ballot and it should be counted at the same time as every other ballot. And um, it is very rare that someone will come in 
with nothing. Now, I understand if you come in with no type of, you don't have your voter registration card, you don't have an, an, a bill, you don't have anything, okay, you probably just need to go home and get your, your, your information. And I understand that that can be conflicting um, with work schedules, but that's a whole nother rabbit hole to go under, um, to go down. So um, yeah, I, I just reject that notion of a provisional ballot. I consider that a second class vote um, that is counted separately, um, and, and, and I reject the notion. What do you think that the prognosis of this legislation is going to be? It's going to the Senate. I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of Democrats that are going to be trying to, you know, filibuster this to death because I know from covering this issue that Democrats have universally opposed government-issued photo ID requirements. But this is also an issue that Republicans could be willing to use the previous question on, which is kind of a filibuster killing maneuver. Is this just an example of like Democrats need to make this bill less bad and just hope for the best? Or do you think this is a bill that you try to fight to the end and make sure doesn't pass? Well, we have traditionally tried to enact both options. Um, However, um, the majority side likes to use the excuse of, well, uh, I'd, I'd accept your amendment, but if I accept your amendment, will you then vote on, vote yes for the bill? And it's like, no, you just gave me a crap pie and I put a cherry on top of it. That just doesn't change the fact that it's a bad deal. Um, so I, I figured that there will be both. Um, there, will be, there will be a filibuster. Um, and luckily in the Senate, their um, previous question process is a lot more complex um, than in the House. So that, that takes a little while to happen. So, um, but I, I'm sure there will be amendments trying to get put on to, to fix some of these flaws that we see. And, and if, if not, there will also be a filibuster because there is nothing um, that is good for the people that comes out of any part of that bill. We'll be right back after this quick break with State Representative Ashley Bland Manlove. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Representative Ashley Bland Manlove. She is a Democrat from Kansas City. I want to stay in the elections realm and talk about initiative petitions and constitutional amendments because there's a number of things going on in that realm. Um, There are people that want to make it uh, require more signatures to get something on the ballot. And there's also other people that want to increase the percentage needed to pass a constitutional amendment from a simple majority to two-thirds. And I wanted you to provide your perspective on these proposals that would need voter approval, a a majority of votes, not two-thirds, but looks like they have quite a bit of momentum going to the legislature this year. Through the legislature, they do. And and sometimes, you know, I think we as, um, you know, political pugnants sometimes don't uh, you know, encourage or educate our base. We'll, we try to scare our base, but we don't always try to educate our base. And, 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 and really what the influx of initiative petitions, um, you know, entries says to me is that there are some serious issues in our society that we are not addressing. So, you know, a lot of the times the majority side likes to say, well, there's just all these frivolous petitions out there. We'll, we'll group them together 
and see what the issues are about and then address those issues and you wouldn't have so many quote unquote frivolous petitions because I don't think um, any constituent active um, engagement or thought in the political process is frivolous. Um, so these again are just more barriers um, for people having direct access uh, to their democracy um, when, when you know, people are moving in a more fascist type of manner. You know, th- I, 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 this is year 15 of me covering Missouri politics. And one thing that's been noticeable is that when there's a Republican in the governorship, um, a lot mm-hmm. of left of center groups use the initiative petition process to get policies that would not be signed into law or passed in the General Assembly. Um, and when when a Democrat is in the governorship, you've seen the Republicans use this, especially to do things, you know, trying to attack the Affordable Care Act or bolster gun rights or bolster the right to farm. And now we're kind of seeing with, you know, the pendulum swing back where a lot of Democratic organizations are using the initiative petition process to do things like Medicaid expansion, which we're going to talk about in a moment, overhauling redistricting, raising the minimum wage. I guess I don't classify medical marijuana as liberal, but I mean, that it, it wasn't right. going to pass the legislature. Would, would, you, would you think it's fair to say the initiative petition process is an, an end around a more conservative legislature to get more progressive left of center policies passed? Well, as you just said, it happens on both sides. So I think it's the people's voices being shut out of their process. Um, it's common practice uh, in the General Assembly for the major for the minority party not to get hearings. Um, I think that's very undemocratic. And maybe some of these initiative petitions like medical marijuana, which they were trying to pass for years, like Medicaid expansion. I know people have um, submitted legislation on this. So it's, it's a direct effect of um, persons trying to consolidate power instead of um, instead of acting in what's best for the people. I'm going to play a clip now from Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft, who has been a supporter of either raising signatures uh, requirements or making it more difficult for constitutional amendments to pass for, for a number of years. This is what he had to say about these proposals. If this goes to the people, the people themselves will get to vote on it. You know, it's like the discussion about Amendment 3 last year where everybody said, oh, you're overturning the will of the people. No, they weren't. They were going to the people and saying, do you want to do it differently? I mean, if you use that standard, every time you go to the people to amend the Constitution, you're overturning what the people said before. But it goes to the people. The people elected the legislators to represent them. We are not a democracy. We are a a constitutional republic. The, the very same people that vote on these things elected overwhelming majorities of legislators that tend to agree that legislation and amendments to our Constitution should go through the legislature. So there are open hearings, there are recorded votes, there are amendments, it's vetted. And don't get me wrong, the legislature doesn't do everything perfectly. Um, so, I, I, you know, it, it's disingenuous to say that, well, you're taking away the people's ability to say something. The people, it won't change unless the people agree to it. So there's a lot that Secretary of Ashcroft said there. But I could yeah. see the argument from mainly the Republican side that sometimes initiative petitions that 
end up passing, and the best example of this is the 2016 campaign finance amendment, have all sorts of unintended consequences, whereas like the legislative process could have caught some of those potential pitfalls. I agree. You know, I don't agree with all of the uh, initiative petitions that have gone through, um, particularly Clean Missouri. I think we completely botched that. Um, and, you know, um, um, a provision for minority owned businesses was left out of the medical marijuana one. So, yes, sometimes they do get it wrong. Um, but they're but majority of the time they get it right. And and again, that goes back to if, you know, the majority side would have let us have a hearing on a lot of those topics, um, we might have been able to do that, but they did not. So therefore, the people had to circumvent um, that process. Well, let's talk about another issue that involves a ballot initiative, and that is Medicaid expansion. So unlike, you know, Secretary Ashcroft was talking about Amendment 3, that was the constitutional amendment that the legislature put on the ballot that repealed Clean Missouri and created a different state legislative redistricting system. And the people ended up voting for that narrowly, but they did end up repealing Clean Missouri. What's different with this Medicaid expansion situation is they're not the Republicans that oppose Medicaid expansion are not trying to repeal this. They're trying to make the argument that they don't have to fund it because there's not a specific piece of verbiage in this amendment saying it has to be funded with something. I heard some of this argument on uh, Thursday uh, when there was an unsuccessful attempt to get Medicaid expansion in. What's kind of your perspective on this? Because I kind of see this fight going to court. There are some Republicans who believe like the court has already ruled on this, but it seems like this is a this is a a battle that is heading straight to the courtroom and they're going to be and the judges are going to be the final arbiter of this entire thing. What's kind of your view of the situation? I completely agree. That's what's going to happen. Um, you know, this isn't this is an attempt to to find any reason, you know, not to expand Medicaid. Um, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, they they have come up with all kinds of reasons like, well, it was a low voter turnout and oh, they didn't specify the funding mechanism, which I don't remember any of the other initiative petitions having a funding mechanism. I remember ex except for Medicaid, ex uh, except for medical marijuana, because we had to say where that money was going. Um, so uh, that's a very, very loose, very loose argument. Um, but I do see this um, ending up in the Supreme Court as this was mandated by the Constitution and they're going against that. So there, that will be a lawsuit. So it, when I was had uh, House Budget Chairman Cody Smith on the show, one of the things I, I pressed him on was the impact of Medicaid expansion on rural Missouri, because mm -hmm. I, I've, I've spent a lot of time in rural Missouri during this pandemic, primarily seeing our beautiful state parks, which I recommend everybody do, by the way. Me too. It, it's very obvious to me that the lack of hospitals and, and healthcare infrastructure is directly connected to the decline of rural Missouri. Um, what I want to ask you about is how do you think Medicaid expansion would affect urban Missouri? 
You know, I don't know if it would have a large um, effect uh, as we have a lot of those um, federally qualified community health centers um, and also in Kansas City specifically and in St. Louis specifically, you can hop the border um, and, and use a different facility. So um, outside of the women, the pregnant women and children that could be added, um, I don't know if the effect will be the largest in the city. I agree with, I agree with the thought process that this is really for rural Missouri. Um, it's their hospitals that are closing. It's their, you know, women who have to drive an hour in childbirth because, you know, there's no uh, hospital close. Um, she has to get to our OBG in, in Kansas City or something like that. So, um, and and there was a, a, a pretty um, dark moment for me that happened on the floor actually where I had to respond during the budget um, debate where I, I said that, you know, it, it's it's the rural hospitals that are closing and, and it's the rural people who don't have the access. Um, so they're hurting their own constituency. And I don't think that they're educating their constituency on what that effect will really be. But the thing that I don't think that's being talked about a lot is that Governor Mike Parson talked about how this was going to happen in his State of the State address. So not only is it like a rhetorical contradiction that the Republicans are putting toward their own governor, but I heard on the floor today that like his administration may follow through with Medicaid expansion anyways because they have to under the constitutional amendment. And so my question is like, how, what's going to happen if if the executive branch ends up going through with Medicaid expansion, but the legislature hasn't provided the appropriation for it? Is this just going to be like a really confusing, weird situation? Or do you think that just that just means it's going to happen regardless of what the legislature does or not, basically? Well, it's going to happen regardless of what the legislature does or not. But um, the budget chair has created a bunch of little like hideaway funds. And, and I don't mean little, um, actually, but they are um, the they enhanced FMAP. And then he created another stimulus fund. And, and there's been several funds that have been created over the past couple of weeks um, that have um, up to hundreds of millions of dollars in them. Um, so that money, um, and then, you know, the governor left, uh, I think a hundred million, um, you know, in reserves and then the budget chair added another 200 million to that. So that's 300 million right there, um, that we're not touching, um, you know, it's supposed to be for a rainy day, but you know, today's beautiful, but in general, the climate is still, we're in the middle of a rainy day. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll just have to pull all those funds back together and there will be more budget hearings. Um, based on the rulings from the Supreme Court. Before I let you go, are there any other pieces of legislation that you're paying attention to in this last, you know, three, four weeks? I know that there's legislation uh, that kind of is is coined as like a police accountability bill, but also removes the residency requirement for the Kansas City Police Department. I'm sure you have an opinion on that. But is there anything else besides that specific bill that I just mentioned that you're you're kind of monitoring as the legislature heads toward its first conclusion before you all come back, at least in the winter for congressional redistricting? Right. Um, education and all of the shiftings that are going on um, between 
um, our public schools and training of teachers and certifications, things of that nature, trying to keep a very close eye on. And then the other bills, you're right, are these um, quote unquote police protection bills and police bill of rights and, and, and of course the Kansas City residency, which yes, I am strongly against because Kansas City does not control its police department. We are controlled by a governor appointed board. Therefore, we cannot fire our chief, which then would mean we would literally have no control over the police officers that patrol the Kansas City area. And that's unacceptable. Well, Representative, thank you so much for your time this afternoon, for all of our stories stlpublicradio.org. Politically Speaking is a production of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Um, You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How could people follow you either on Twitter or any other social media platform that you want to mention? Well, on Twitter, I am manlove, uh, M-A-N-L-O-V-E, the number four, and I think it's Mo, manlove for Mo, like Missouri. And then, uh, but really find me on Facebook, uh, Representative Ashley Bland Manlove. Thank you very much. And until next time, so long. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking.